0: I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. And we have a lot to talk about. We are post TIFF, pre-New York Film Festival. Awards news is kind of coming and going, uh, including from the Academy itself. They had a big event over the weekend. Um, there's box office to talk about. There's just a hodgepodge, so we'll get into all of it. So we're going to start with what has been breaking news this week as we're recording our show, which is that the Golden Globes are coming back. This is something you would know if you'd listened to us before. Um, it was kind of, the writing was kind of on the wall earlier um, that the publicists who were really pushing for reforms um, were somewhat getting their way and that NBC was ready to re-sign the contract, which they have done, but only for a year. Um, Rebecca, you have done the reporting on the Globes for us. This is what the result that we expected, Right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. This is no surprise. I think we were all just waiting for it to be announced and to get the official date, um, which is January 10th, two days before Oscar voting begins. So it's official. It's back. <laughs> what do you make of the one year renewal, though? Like, is this a is are the Globes on probation? It does feel a little bit like they're on probation. I mean, in general, obviously, we all know that award show ratings have been in a steep, steep decline for years now. So it does make sense that NBC may not want to keep this going, especially with the troubled past of the Globe. So um, it does sound like they'll have to shop it around after this year. But I think that just puts more eyeballs on how this goes this year.
0: Yeah. Richard, do you think it's worth it?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm just wondering, like, if for some reason, somehow uh, it was a huge hit this year, let's say, would NBC then be interested? Or are they kind of saying, like, contractually, we have to give you this one more year, but then we're... We're kind of done.
3: I think it just puts them in the power position for negotiating again the the next year. Right. And it's interesting. They're going to stream it this year on Peacock, which has not been done before. So I don't know how that's going to affect how they view it as a success or not. Um, That's what they
0: did with the Emmys as well, I think. And I don't know. You know, it's funny when we talked about Emmys ratings. I don't know that Peacock got included in that, even though realistically that's how a lot of people are watching it. So I'm not sure they have figured that out yet.
1: Well, a lot might be generous.
0: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) However many people are subscribing to Peacock, 10% of that.
1: But the other big part of this equation, Rebecca, right, is like, is talent going to come? Yeah,
3: that's the question. Which
1: is the whole point of watching the Golden Globes is to watch tipsy celebrities at tables interacting with each other. Um, So without that, if that's not, I mean, I guess they will probably, right? If they're nominated, like we took the time off. We've let the organization at least nominally reform itself. And so now everything is kosher again?
3: I think it's um it's a house divided I guess I would say because there are definitely many many people especially the studios who are ready to just like get back on this and and will fully commit to bringing their talent you know this is a huge marketing stepping stone for any Oscar film or talent so the studios are are very ready I think it's the personal publicists uh, there's there's a handful of them that don't feel like the HFPA did enough change and what we should be watching closely is if their talent shows up. There's only been a couple public statements. You know, Tom Cruise gave his Globes back, and obviously he is someone that could very well be nominated this year. So mm-hmm. he'll be one to watch. We don't know if he's going to show or not. But a lot of this, I think, is just going to be conversations that, have, that are had over the next couple of months between these publicists and their talent.
0: I think Brennan Fraser is also the person you want to watch. I'm not sure he's said anything in this whole reform period, but he was the one who came public a few years ago was saying that he had been, you know, assaulted by an HFPA member. And I think for him to come back would probably be really challenging for him. And I'm curious what kind of decision he'll make there. It's also worth noting that there's a Globes events leading up to the Globes themselves, like there are, you know, HFPA specific press conferences and events. So I think And Rebecca told me if you can even actually witness this. We'll have a sense of who's participating before the Globes actually happen.
3: Yeah, their parties before the Globes have always been so star-studded that I think we'll get a pretty quick indication if it's going to be the same this year or it's going to feel very different.
0: To look at the horse race aspect of it, too, I mean, I think for those of us who, like, want to know what's going on with the season, the Globes always play a very unique role with their comedy categories specifically. And I was thinking about Bros, which Mm -hmm. played so well at TIFF and is opening in a few weeks, as maybe getting a big boost from this. Glass Onion could really, like, run the table in that comedy category. Are there any other
3: films that, whether or not they want to admit it, might be really grateful that the Globes are coming back? I do think Top Gun, like, that's sort of this film that we're all kind of watching to see what it does this year, uh, you know, depending on the Tom Cruise part of it all. But it's really those, like, bigger sort of commercial movies. Um, we don't have a lot of musicals this year. Usually musicals get a huge boost from the Last Globes. year was
0: the year. <laughs> yeah, it was.
3: I mean, don't you think that
1: Everything Everywhere could be classified as a comedy, and that would be a good road test for its awards viability? Yeah.
0: yeah that's interesting. You know,
1: and, like, not just its viability, which it already has, but, like we probably will like seeing that cast or some combination of them like on stage or at an award show, you know, kind of having a good time. Like, I think, I think that movie for me is like the kind of semi dormant at the moment, but potential sort of sleeper stealth thing that kind of, that does a lot more than, than, you know, it seems it will now. Um, and I think the Globes would be, and the Sags certainly would be like a good first foray for them setting the the tone for Oscars.
0: Yeah, imagine um, Michelle Yeoh winning Actors in a Comedy and Kate Blanchett winning Actors in a Drama and that showdown going down to the Oscars. It, it'd be fun.
3: Yeah, the, the Globes, you know, one of the criticisms they got was their lack of inclusion in nominees. And so obviously they've doubled their voter body and, and made it much more uh, diverse than it used to be. So, you know, I think people will be closely watching how certain films are received as well. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll go from the Globes um, to the Oscars, to the Academy, to the other major awards voting body, um, because the Academy was pretty busy over this past weekend with some events. Um, but they had an event on Saturday, um, and they also had news on Saturday, both of which you were keeping an eye on for us, Rebecca. So um, maybe let's start with the event itself, the Sachin Little Feather evening that they did on Saturday night, um, which seems like pretty straightforward, but also long overdue. What was the vibe you got from watching that happen on Saturday, Rebecca?
3: It felt like a really special event. You know, there was a, a very large, prominent Native American group, a lot a lot of representation from that group, which in obviously has been completely ignored for decades in Hollywood. So it really felt different and the way they honored Sashin felt really, really special. You know, she got standing ovations and she came in and she left and she came back in and just the way she was treated is such a one eighty from what happened in the Oscars, at the Oscars in 1973. So to see that amount of change um, felt really special. And she was so funny and charming. And and the event could have felt so self-serious. And, and I think she brought a lot of lightness to it as well.
0: Yeah, I guess we should have said, uh, for anyone who doesn't recognize her name, she declined Marlon Brando's on his Oscar on his behalf at the 1973 Oscars for The Godfather and has, you know, been a punchline in some ways for or was for a long time and kind of symbolized, like... Hollywood weirdness like I, I don't even know how best to describe the way she was de- depicted in pop culture and it seems like the Academy kind of ignored it for a long time and now finally decided look we need to to right a wrong here
3: yeah I am so curious about the timing I don't know if it's just the new leadership or or what made this the moment to do it I'm, I'm so glad they did but I, I would have loved to sort of hear how this came about but it sounds like they'd been discussing it for for quite a while
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right that it feels like evidence of a new uh, leadership. And that was sort of the theme of the press release that came out also on Saturday, not about the Academy itself, but about the Oscars, where they confirmed who the producers will be, which is something you had talked to Bill Kramer about, the Academy's CEO, earlier this summer, where he was saying that hiring the producers early was one of the moves they were going to make to um, improve the Oscars experience. Um, So what do we think about the choices they made?
3: Um, Yeah, so they hired... Glenn Weiss, who is a longtime director of the Oscars, and uh, Ricky Kirshner, who is also a veteran of doing sort of these big live TV events. He's done the Democratic National Conventions for years, Super Bowl halftime shows, Tonys. So they really went with experience of handling a live show, which has not been what has happened before. Or at least not in the last, like, decade or so. Yeah, not in the last few years. You know, there's been, they like the sort of, big uh Hollywood names who are often movie producers to come on in and, and give this a shot and and I think there's a sort of general feeling that that hasn't worked well because producing a live show is very different than producing um, you know anything else so I think it's a good decision and and hopefully will result in a good show
0: um David or Richard did you guys feel any relief in seeing that they're at least planning this part of the Oscars telecast this far in advance
1: I think that's a good sign you know I would hope that Kershner, who has you know done those all those DNC, um, would would be mindful to not drop balloons from the sky and expect people to hit them. You know, because remember mm. when they hit Hillary, that didn't work out so well. So you know, mm-hmm. just don't mm-hmm. don't apply all of the lessons learned from the DNC. Um, The
0: Oscars are rounded on top on like an Emmy, so they won't pop the way that, so there's, there's potential.
1: (laughs) And movie stars are more athletic in general. So um,
0: (laughs)
3: all those theater kids are athletic. What are we talking about?
1: (laughs) Some of them are dancers, Rebecca. Uh, Jeremy Pope will be fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, I think it's good. I mean, that has always been the sort of vexing baffling thing for all of us, I think, but maybe me who is not, not always immediately aware of like when this stuff starts getting planned, but it always feels like it's kind of this rush, you know, months from now, it starts, you know, and, and the hope of a sort of more considered, more planned show, including hopefully bringing in a host sooner rather than later, I think would bode well. And I think there's nothing wrong with going back to, you know, these kind of old stalwart producers who um, might not be the most exciting, but, like, I think that the the show just needs to figure out what its baseline is post-pandemic, and then we can start adding to it. I mean, you know, even this year's Emmys broadcast was, I think, another example, from what I saw, I didn't watch the whole show, um, of like, I I get what you were going for, but it didn't quite work, and I think the same was true of last year's Academy, or this, you know, earlier this year's Academy Awards ceremony, um, including, as I've said multiple times, if there were more stairs, the slap wouldn't have happened.
3: (laughs) More (laughs) stairs. (laughs) is our main note.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, who knows
2: what will happen between now and the actual show, but it it feels to me like the priorities they're laying out are the right ones and signal the right way of thinking about how the Oscars need to change. I mean, it felt like for the last few years, around this time, you'd start hearing murmurs about the telecast and what producers and the Academy wanted to do, and you'd just hear a ton about Things that would lead to a fan favorite Oscar or things that would lead to cutting categories of, you know, trying to open up the tent as much as possible at the expense of putting on the kind of show that people who love the Oscars and what the Oscars should be um, are all about. And, you know, instead they're talking about now how best to integrate every single category into the show and how to bring back, I think, some of the the sheen that was lo- that's was been lost over the years and just in terms of this clunky attempt to bring in people who don't actually care about the Oscars and who aren't going to watch the Oscars anyway.
3: Yeah, they did a – during this meeting, they revealed the results of a survey they'd done with the Academy members and uh, only 2% liked the fan favorite and only 20% <laughs> liked the show overall. Um, which is very low. And so, you know, I guess the the 92nd Oscars had a 61% approval rating from the Academy. So I think they're they're very aware that a lot of things have to be fixed, um, especially the way that certain categories were presented before the show. I mean, they made it very clear that's something they're trying to figure out. They didn't say it's necessarily going back to the way it was, but that it's not going to be what happened this past year.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I wonder how that, that 20% figure would be if the slap hadn't happened. You know, yeah. it's not, that's not something that was the Academy's fault entirely. But I think the transparency is encouraging, right? Like, I, f- I feel like for years the Oscars have been like, well, if we say that we are the best and the most important, then everyone will believe it. And now there seems to be some acknowledgement that they have to recognize feedback and, and say when things
3: went wrong, which I think this year on, undeniably went wrong. Yeah. Yeah, this new leadership seems to be making it a priority to communicate both to the members, but also to the wider community um, in a way I haven't seen in a while. So I'm, I'm definitely feeling positive about that change, at least.
0: Well, let's come back into the present, I guess, a little bit more, uh, more so than the Oscars in the future, um, which is also over the weekend. It was a really busy weekend and not during a film festival. I think we're all ready for a quieter weekend in the near future. Um, but it, on Sunday in New York, there was the world premiere of David O. Russell's Amsterdam, um, which is one of the very few major fall movies that hadn't premiered at a festival already. It's not actually opening until October 7th, so this was a little bit more of an early um, preview. Um, Jordan Hoffman went to the premiere and wrote a little bit about kind of the energy. A lot of the stars were there. Taylor Swift wasn't, um, but a lot of the other ones (laughs) were there, including Margot Robbie, who also has Babylon out later this year. Um, The response has been fine. I think I understand why maybe at a film festival like TIFF where there's so much competition, it really would have gotten drowned out. I see the reason for holding it, but it, it does seem like... It's kind of this like non-factor in the awards race already, despite this incredible Oscar pedigree going into it. Um, Rebecca, you actually saw it. Do you want to talk a little
3: bit more about why it feels like such an odd duck this year? There's so many aspects of this that feel weird. You know, it's being released by Disney, but it's not a very Disney film. It's obviously a 20th um, sort of leftover film. And it's so star-studded, like watching it every every few minutes, some other giant star appears on, you're just like, oh, you're in this movie too? And and it feels like that's like perfectly set up. Um, Obviously, it's led by Christian Bale, who is really, really amazing in this as he is in everything, Um, and obviously gets nominated for Oscars all the time. So it feels like it has that recipe that it could have been put on the normal path to Oscar, but... I think there may be some aspect of sort of not knowing what to do with this movie, and that has put it on this sort of really strange path. So I'm not sure how much we're going to be talking about it for the rest of award season. I mean, reviews come out, I think next week. Is that right, Richard? So we'll know uh, more. I think the week after next, or the week yeah. after that. So we'll know more after that. But I think it's definitely one of the weirdest rollouts I've seen in a while during an award season with this kind of cast.
1: It's also weird because. No one ha- – I mean, I can't think of a, a comparable run to the one that David O. Russell had
3: mm-hmm. in
1: the late mid-late 2000s, early 2010s, like with Silver Linings, with The Fighter, with um, – American Hustle. American Hustle, thank you. Sorry. I sometimes forget that movie exists.
0: Um, <laughs> New York Film Critics Circle winner American Hustle, Richard?
1: I wasn't in it then. That's awesome. I'll say. Um, But, um, you know – he had been an interesting filmmaker. You know, he had, what was that movie uh, with Jeremy, uh, something of uh, Slapping the Monkey or whatever, and then Three Kings. And, you know, he'd been around, and then all of a sudden he kind of re-emerged post-Huckabees with this, like, whole new mission statement almost to, like, make these quirky but populist Oscar-y things, whether they're sort of more heavy drama like The Fighter, more comedy um, like Silver Linings, or sort of, sort of in between with American Hustle, which is kind of also a thriller. And, like, it, it worked for three-ish films, kind of almost, it felt like back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. Um, mm-hmm. And that was wild, and it kind of felt like, all right, well, David O. Russell is just one of the Oscar characters who's here to stay, and then it kind of dropped off significantly. So this had, I think, at one point, Amsterdam had been poised as, like, picking that narrative back up. Um, and I can understand why all of these stars would be attracted to it, why the, a big studio would be interested in it. Um, but it seems like maybe, as Joy presaged, like, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the era of this has passed, And people just aren't sure, like, where his movies fit anymore. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I think there was a... Two things have
2: dovetailed with this moment. One of which is his movies, I think, have gotten worse since The Fighter. Joy was not very good. I don't think American Hustle has aged very well, even though it racked up a ton of nominations and did win a lot of critics' awards. Um, And then there's the reputational question. Um, It does Mm -hmm. feel like post-Me Too... He was someone who was mentioned a lot very much in the background, um, but it started to really rash it up, um, really run the announcement of this movie. He's had some projects that fell through. He had a – I think it was an Amazon show with Julian Moore and Robert De Niro <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, but his his niece uh, had accused him of, I believe, sexual assault, uh, which he denied. Uh, there have been, of course, the infamous reports of his onset behavior.
0: I mean, literally uh, caught on video. like he's Literally one, he's, caught on
2: video. Yeah. But also instances like what Amy Adams has described that we haven't seen, where she described him reducing her to tears, and she said she would not work with him again. Uh, and there have been a couple of reports like that. So the combination of those two things, I think, has made it. very, very different climate for him to release a big, messy, starry movie like this, which, yeah, early reactions, uh, including Rebecca's, indicate that it's not, like, great. (laughs) And it's not a movie that Disney seems to believe in at all for all of those reasons. I I do think it's fascinating the way they are releasing this movie, because they gave it a Nice premiere event at Alice Tully Hall. I thought it was interesting that Ben Stiller moderated the Q&A. I recently rewatched Flirting with Disaster, which I think is a great movie. Oh, I love
0: that movie. Yeah,
2: which was one of his early movies. But, you know, you do it there, and then you release the movie smack in the middle of New York Film Festival, where Alice Tully Hall is a major venue. But it's not a part of the festival, and it just feels like it's being dumped off in this very, very strange way. It would be like if The Woman King were released... In the middle of TIFF with the premiere at Roy Thompson Hall, but it, we're not a part of TIFF. It just doesn't, it, it feels <laughs> almost deliberate the way it's being cast aside. Um, and I think the promo has been quite lacking as well.
0: Uh, I do hear that um, if you are intrigued by Taylor Swift's film career, that there is something to look forward to in this. So I, guess. I Don't
3: <laughs> oversell that, Katie. <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I, I don't. If you're a Taylor Swift fan, I don't know. I mean,
0: <laughs> I, don't know, I, I don't know if it's going to eclipse midnights as the thing that we're anticipating, or for that matter, her all-too-well Oscar run. But um, I, I'm intrigued, but maybe not. Will it ever be on Disney Plus? I'll just say she's in the movie. That's all I will say. <laughs> I've
2: heard it's going to be like... A meme.
0: Yes, this is what I have heard too, that like her um, moment is yeah. memorable. Yeah, that's fair. Well, uh, in a few more weeks we'll catch up with it maybe once Richard has seen it and um, figure out where the, the status quo stands on that. Um, Well, one more. Well, I can know. It's just more news more of the weekend, too. Um, So I'll start first with the TIFF Audience Award winners, um, which we talk about constantly in connection with the Toronto International Film Festival because the Audience Award is such a reliable Oscar precursor at this point. It's something that you know that if you're a major studio bringing your film there that's even remotely a crowd pleaser, you are really hoping you can go home with it. Um, And I don't know if anyone said this on mic last week, but I think... Uh, David and Richard, maybe you both predicted that the Fablemans would win, and it did. Steven Spielberg (laughs) went home with a huge prize from his first time at TIFF. Um, The runner-up was Women Talking, which maybe we can talk about a bit more. And then third place was Class Onion, um, which somehow is the first time a Knives Out movie has won an audience award. It did not place uh, in 2019 wildly enough. David, did you predict Fablemans would win this? Does this feel exactly as intended?
2: That was my expectation. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely wasn't sure of that. You know, there were a lot of really audience-friendly movies at TIFF this year that played really well, none of which were the runner-up, actually. I was very surprised by the runner-up, which we can get into. We'll talk about The um,
0: King in a minute, too. <laughs> but yeah, I think
2: Richard said something last week that I think is very true, which is the TIFF audience is a little bit more discerning than we can sometimes say about what they choose of the audience winner. They don't always go with, say, a green book they do like to go for movies that have a lot of artistic import, have something to say, um, but that also are accessible. And the Feldmans was like, I think, the dream combination of all of those things, especially mm. just the personal factor of film lovers going to see this movie, knowing the connection Spielberg talks talked about at the premiere, but that's also very just apparent in the movie. It's very clearly autobiographical and and memoristic. Um, so yeah, it just played exactly as you would hope. I think this went exactly as Universal hoped, uh, and it proves that the movie will find a lot of fans beyond critics and the industry, which I think is probably the big win, honestly, because it is a smaller
1: Spielberg movie.
0: Richard, did it surprise you at all?
1: No, I mean, I think, I, I thought maybe Glass Onion would sneak in there, but I think that the second place we've been talking thing, it does indicate exactly what David said, is that the TIFF audiences both like their big populist stuff, but they also, you know, I think collectively like to consider films that they feel are capital I important, you know, and mm-hmm. um, that doesn't always bear out with the People's Choice Award, but it, it kind of tends to more often than not. Um and with that calculus, it was like, yeah, I think The Fableman's hits enough of the the quadrants to be the favorite there. And then Women Talking, um, I think that gets a big boost because Polly's, Sarah Pauls Polly's is Canadian. Um, and uh, Sheila McCarthy, who's a Canadian actress, is great in the movie. And there's another Canadian actress whose name I forget. So that probably helped a lot. But also because it's a movie that, you know, has weight to it, has gravitas to it, and um, is, I think, quite literally and also metaphorically, like, engaged in dialogue and discourse that feels very urgent to today. So I think that would definitely resonate with TIFF audiences who are seeking that kind of significance to a film in addition to the entertainment factor, which is why, you know, Glass Onion is third.
0: David, I think you had said that Women Talking seemed to have cooled a little bit at TIFF compared to its Telluride premiere, where it was kind of like tailor-made for that. Does this make you change your mind about that?
2: I think Telluride was such an ideal launching pad for that movie in so many ways, especially with having that whole cast there and having the time of their lives that inevitably when you get to Toronto and you're unveiling it to a much bigger, broader, more diverse audience, there are going to be more questions about how it plays. And there were, from what I could tell, a lot of murmurs about it not playing as well that, you know, most people I talked to really love the movie and the premiere – I was out of town by that point, but seemed to go over extremely well. But yeah, I think this really proves it is the very strong contender that Rebecca and I saw in Telluride, which is to say it's a very talky movie. It's a very, uh, I think, demanding movie at times. It really does require a certain amount of attention and emotional investment, but it is one that plays really well to a crowd that is more accessible than you might expect uh, and that... I think ends on a very moving, rousing note that audiences connected to. I I do agree with Richard that Sarah Polly being Canadian and from Toronto helped to a degree, but this is not a movie that would have ranked on the People's Choice top three if it didn't play really well Mm. overall to the Toronto audience. Um, So I think it says a lot more for its Oscar prospects that it placed here than it, that it got really great reviews at a Telluride, for example. I think this is a huge sign of the fact that it can play broadly and it, it's not going to be limited to a really, really niche, passionate audience. Um, so yeah, it's really good news for the campaign, I think.
1: Yeah. A credit to the way the film is not, uh, it's about a, a very narrow community of people. I mean, it's really about a lot more than that, but like, You know, it it could be kind of alienating, but Polly does a good job of really not in a condescending way, but just sort of a generous way guiding the viewer into the into the world and then letting them sit with it. You know, it's not um, uh, artful in a way that um, obscures, you know, just a more casual investment in it. You know, it's it's, I mean, that's a weird way of saying it's it's kind of an entertaining movie, despite the fact that it's about all these really heavy things.
0: Well, I feel like we do have a, you know, we were talking about Blonde and Bardo before we started recording. Like, there do seem to be a lot of movies coming this fall where you're just like, oh, okay, like, I got to go through this. And Women Talking feels like it could be seen as an Eat Your Vegetables movie. But this Audience Award seems like a very strong signal to people that that it's not, which is what you guys have been telling us, too.
2: Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you know, when I was doing some mental predictions about the top three here, it was a movie I was definitely rooting for, but... You know, last week we were talking about movies like The Woman King and Bros and Banshees of an and movies that— um, and The Whale. And The Whale. Yeah, and movies that didn't get, you know, wonderful reviews but seemed to play really well to their crowds. And, and it seemed like there just might not be space for a movie like Women Talking because this was Tiff's big comeback year and <laughs> Tiff came ready with a lot of very Tiff-friendly movies. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily think it says a ton about those movies not ranking so much as it does that— Clearly, women talking was enough of a crowd pleaser that those more standard crowd pleaser type films did not go as far.
0: Ah. Uh-huh. So on Sunday I tweeted something that is a very sincerely held belief, which is that Steven Spielberg doesn't have enough Oscars because he has he's only won Best Picture once, which is insane Correct to belief. me. Yeah, I think I mean I think everyone on here agrees to some extent. But I think right now the the pressure is like, okay, so is Fableman's the one? Like, you come out of TIFF, you see the audience award winner. Often people will say, well, there's your best picture winner. Um, And I think when it's a Spielberg movie, there's maybe even more reason to say so. Um, But I think if you're universal, you're you're a little worried, right? Like, you don't want to be in this position of early September. Everyone's saying, ah, I see the future. So how do they handle that from here?
3: I think it's... Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of concern from multiple studios about being an early front runner. You know, we saw yeah. Belfast and Power of the Dog sort of had these early uh, peaks and then it's hard to keep up the momentum for that long. So I think it's pacing, right? Like you give people a breather and then you show back up. I mean, there's a ton more festivals coming around. So every rep we talk to just tries to keep us from making the frontrunner narrative (laughs) for as long as humanly possible. So um, there's definitely that fear, I think, from everybody.
1: I think the good strategy would just be to go completely quiet with that movie, Mm -hmm. you know, until much closer to release and then um, start it back up again. Because, you know, my temptation is always to say, yes, there's a problem of maintaining momentum, but there's also a problem of averting backlash. Mm-hmm. Which is relevant to us as we talk about this stuff um, all year, but like I don't think the academy—I mean, evidence suggests they don't really pay it so much attention to backlash as we might think they would. You know, they have jobs
0: and other things to do. Well, yeah, <laughs>
1: they have jobs that aren't literally talking about the backlash, but um, but you know, I think it's more just about like. It's about story. And you kind of get sick of a story that you started hearing in September by the mm-hmm. time it's February, you know, and so I think a very strategic like, okay, we had this big splash. It's now firmly in, you know, at the top of the heap right now, The Fablemans is. Um, let's enjoy that with a sort of classy, stoic silence for a bit and not, mm-hmm. you know, I don't I don't think The Fablemans is hitting like a ton of other smaller regional festivals or anything like that? Well, I don't uh, maybe know if I'm they've wrong.
0: announced yet. I, like I'm yeah. thinking, I don't know if Hamptons or uh, Mill Valley or Film Fest 919 here by me, yeah. like I don't think they have their lineups out yet. So we'll see.
1: We'll see. I mean, and that, you know, those are small enough that it probably wouldn't, you know, reaction from there wouldn't get all the way into seep into the industry. But like, yeah, they have a good thing going and you just want to kind of maintain this precious little delicate thing uh as long as you can. And then once you hit, you know, once you round into 2023, then you can go full tilt boogie for two months, you know, because mm-hmm. then I think people are sort of just in that mode. But right now you can either consciously or not sour on something not necessarily because you oh I think it's bad all of a sudden but just because I'm sick of hearing about it
3: yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think every season we are we hear those same stories over and over again that at one point you're like I cannot hear about how they designed the apartment for the father one more time so I think <laughs> if, if we're just like
0: that's a funny example because that was a classic late peak movie that we yeah, were not talking yeah, about but forever. like
3: every interview was about that and then Spielberg obviously has a story to tell to tell about deciding to do this, but because it's him, they're already going to be so selective about what he does that I think they have a very good chance to do exactly what Richard is saying.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, said. we talked about The Woman King, which was the other news of the weekend, it led the box office, um, as widely expected because the box office has been so grim for a while. Um, But it did really well. It did, uh, you know, it outpaced expectations. It got an A-plus cinema score, I think, which I would have, I guess, expected based on what you guys said about how it was received at TIFF. So now for us dorks, the question is, like, how how does this affect it as an Oscar contender? I think it, it played well, but wasn't, like, regarded as some earth-shattering work of art when it premiered at TIFF. But now that it's a hit, does that put some more wind in its sails?
2: Definitely. There's a really good case to be made to start for Viola Davis, mm-hmm. um, who feels more and more like a like an actor who will fit into that best actress five and deserves to, it's a completely different kind of performance for her. She's so good in the movie and she really anchors it. And and then beyond that, you know, there there is a lot you can do for the campaign with her at the, at the top of it, because both Toussaint Bedou and um, Lashana Lynch are great um, in supporting. Gina is a director who has never really had her Academy moment, but certainly um, has a lot of respect and, just pulled off something pretty remarkable I think with this movie just in terms of how well it's done and how well she was able to turn out a kind of action epic that Hollywood has never made before and then yeah in terms of best picture I it's going to be tough still I think it's it's not a typical nominee and as we get deeper into the season it's it's going to have to really hold on as you know a lot of big movies come through and and Take up a lot of that space, but and I think big in terms ha- of
0: like scale, which I think is the challenge, yes, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Like Avatar, which mm-hmm. is you know starting. I thought it was interesting that that press rollout started a little earlier, maybe than I would have expected.
0: Well, they're doing the re-release this weekend um, of the original Avatar.
2: James Cameron is talk is doing some interviews already. He's got um, some
0: hot takes. <laughs> in, he's, <laughs> he's got he's good hot at takes. It.
2: <laughs> Introducing himself as the kinder new James Cameron, which I I can't wait. I can't wait to meet this new James Cameron. Um, but yeah, you've got that. You've got Wakanda Forever, Um and which Top Gun we both, still. yeah, and Top Gun, all of which I think we expect more firmly to figure into this conversation. Woman King is the kind of scrappy surprise of that group, maybe, and it's when you really root for. But Best Picture Ten is quite competitive this year, so to me, it's right on that bubble. And if it can keep up this momentum and find some early love with, you know, various. Awards bodies and critics
1: groups, um, I think it does have a shot to get into that 10. Katie, it was the fortune teller. She she told you that one day Maria Bella will be nominated for producing (laughs) one of the best pictures of the year, right?
0: Best picture nominee Maria Bella? I had this thought as I was exiting theater when I saw it on Sunday, seeing her name as a just producer. You know, she's it was her idea. And I was like, good for her. (laughs) And a story credit. She she would get
1: nominated for screenplay if it were to get nominated. And I think that, That is one of the many, very far down the list of, like, why this film is notable, certainly, is Maria Bello's involvement. But it is kind of a fun inside baseball industry story that, like, Mm -hmm. Maria Bello pitched Viola Davis on stage at a live event uh, and the crowd cheered. And then here we are, however many <laughs> years later, and she's the star of the film that got made for, you know. Like, I, I think that, like, there's a fun, um, like, I'm sure that people have been aware of this project for a long time, and, and it struggles to get the proper financing, which I would argue it still didn't get as as much money as it deserved. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, that, I think that goes a, a long way. It's a big studio film, which is always fun these days. And, um, you know, yeah, it does have the competition that, that David mentioned. But I don't know, there's something rousing about this movie that is sort of uh, hard to argue with. And if you're sitting with that screener pile, and this one comes up, it's entertaining. It's just over two hours. It's not some, you know, I think, again, should be longer, but like, it's it's very digestible while also making you feel like you had a good meal, like a good nourishing meal. And I, I don't know, I think that counts for a lot, as does, yes, the fact that TV and films, Maria Bello, <laughs> somehow <laughs> is behind all this.
0: I totally agree with you that it should have cost more and it should have been longer. Um, it's, I had a really fantastic time watching it, um, but every time it would like cut away from a scene, I'd be like, oh, I want like a, a sweeping vista yeah. of a mm-hmm. forest mm-hmm. right now, um, which you know, it was made for $50 million, which is astonishing when you look at, mm-hmm. I mean, the costumes of that movie are really unbelievable. Um, but while I was watching, you mentioned Viola Davis, David, and I was thinking about Top Gun and a piece I wrote this summer about how white Tom Cruise would become a perfectly valid uh, best actor nominee for that movie. And I stand by it. But Viola Davis is doing, it's not a similar performance or character, but it is movie star gravitas. Yes. Like she is, she's not the center of the story, even. Like she, you know, she and Tucson and Beto are kind of equal leads almost. Um, but you just watch her and you're like, this is what she can do. Only Viola Davis could do this. Um, and I, for everything you were saying, David, I think she'd be a really great best Actress nominee for that.
2: Yeah, that's such an exciting category. I think I say that every week. But <laughs> I I, re- I really I'm I'm really thrilled with how it's shaping up uh, because Viola just adds a really an, another element of star power and like a fascinating new kind of performance for her to that field, which is going to only get more complicated when movies like *Till* and *Babylon* unveil themselves. So I'm excited for it.
0: Okay, one last thing before we wrap up, because uh, there are actual awards being announced uh, here and there, uh, tribute awards mostly this time of year. Um, But I was very intrigued that the cast of Fire Island will be receiving a tribute award at the Gothams in December. Um, Those are kind of one of the first awards of the year. They focus on independent film Uh, The nominees will be announced on October 25th, so like truly right around the corner. Um, And we've talked about Fire Island because it is technically eligible for the Emmys next year. I don't know if this tribute award means that they're going to try and somehow qualify it in some other weird way. It might be too late for that. And the Gothams do TV as well. Um, But this felt to me like such an example of the weird state of awards that we're still living in. And I don't know if anyone else feels a little weird. Excited for Fire Island, but weird about it.
2: I don't understand. <laughs> I
1: don't. <laughs> Excited for Fire Island, but I don't understand. <laughs> what I don't get is they just announced that it's eligible for Tonys. <laughs> I know it's about gay guys in New York, but like <sighs> that seems like a stretch.
3: Um, that musical number was excellent. So. Fair enough.
0: Fair like, enough. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I forgot. Yeah, about they're gonna that. somehow qualify Britney Spears as sometimes as a um, as an original song.
3: <laughs> Do it. Yeah, I mean the it's at the academy meeting. They very much emphasize the theatrical requirement is not going away. Obviously, this year is especially messy because of the COVID and and the not the not theatrical releasing of some movies and not others. And you know, Leo Grant being grandfathered in, and so it's like this is a real mess this year. I I I wonder you know if that rule is just hard and clear by next year we won't be having this problem or if, you know, these certain companies are going to try to push for this to keep happening. But it's definitely a mess. I don't have any answers on the solution. I
0: mean, given the news that HBO is going to put Magic Mike 3 in theaters, after all, after having said it was going to go to HBO Max, it it does feel like there's some recognition, which the box office bears out, like put your movies in theaters and make a few extra million dollars. Like hopefully by this, by next year, they have all, come back to it but you're right Rebecca that they might still be trying to fight that battle.
2: Yeah. I, I thought of um, in the context of this Fire Island win, the fact that Bros is coming out uh, a week from fr- a week from tomorrow uh, as of this airing and that's like the mo- the Woman King, a movie that played really really well at TIFF deserves to be seen with big crowds and I think do really well and and prove something to Hollywood that it has long ignored or pushed aside. And you wish you, you hope you root for these movies to to get those kinds of big theatrical releases. And I do think that there is something to be said for the Academy holding to that rule because there we are at a time again where people are going to the movies and are excited about original movies. And um it sucks at Fire Island is now in this weird middle ground where it's clearly, to some extent at least, a part of this award season. But, I mean, I would be very confused and surprised if Searchlight went to the trouble to try to get it yeah. considered for for Academy Awards just because you don't have Emma Thompson <laughs> campaigning. You know, it's it's a different kind of calculus, I think, where it would be such a long shot, and it would be even more of a leap, I think, because it came out. You know, it wasn't acquired out of Sundance. It had long been planned for that kind of route. So, I don't know how that would work, but um, yeah, it's it's kind of a it's interesting that this is a, a moment where you have Fire Island getting this award as a streaming movie, but as a movie that was pretty well received, and you have Bros coming out in theaters, hopefully going to be at least some kind of hit, and maybe even getting a run beyond that for screenplay as previous Apatow productions have.
0: It does make me want, like, some critics' groups to go rogue and looking at, like, um, society of LGBTQ entertainment critics. For example, like, give us Fire Island a screenplay award. Like, who's going to stop you? Go make Searchlight regret the choices yep. that they made that led us here. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All
0: right, New York Film Critics Circle, Richard, you start whipping up those votes for us.
1: Oh, no, I'm, I'm a straight... American Hustle ticket this year to make up for Lost Time. <laughs> They're doing a re-release, like Avatar, I think. Yeah, so. exactly.
0: Yeah. In 3D, finally. Yeah, I
1: think so it, it qualifies.
0: <laughs> I'm finally
1: going to get over on all those guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter, HWD, and on our own, I'm Katie Rich, and Richard, Rylos, and David,
2: David Canfield, 97,
0: and Rebecca, Becca Rebecca M. Ford. You can also text us at 213-513-7215 or go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen. Richard, this week someone wrote in to say that your expansive vocabulary has been serving as their word of the day, so keep it up.
1: Okay. Today's word is American hustle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best late-breaking review of West Side Story goes to Rebecca Ford. All those theater kids are athletic